so her crest opens maybe into six crest 200 six crest 400 six crest and six crest 50 to stop <laughs> yes spot on that'll do for me We've just listened to the final moments of the final stage, the 1995 Network Q Rally GB, of course, when Colin McRae and Derek Room were crowned the FIA World Rally Champions. We thought we'd make a very special documentary series over the next two episodes of this podcast, and it's all about 95, not necessarily from the perspective of Colin, but of course he will be mentioned, as will Derek, as will ProDrive throughout, but from some of the other teams and some of the other people behind the scenes of what was going on while this, I suppose really really famous season now we got our first British world champion but it was for me it was when rallying became mainstream just for that short period of time we definitely got mainstream we really really did and the average man on the street was talking about rallying again so I thought it was a really good time to look back and look back on 95 with the people who were there and pre-internet pre-social media and all those things my thirst for knowledge on rallying on results was always one of CFAX, Teletext, getting Motorsport News every Wednesday when it came out, having a cheeky glance perhaps at Autosport and WH Smiths while I was there. And if I was really lucky, picking up Rally Sport magazine also. For me, Anti-Beep, the BBC here in the UK, was really, really important. Without them, I probably wouldn't know half the things that were going on. And I certainly wouldn't be able to recognise some of the things as, as the teams, the liveries and things like that, all things that we take for granted today, the things that we can see in an instant, these are the things that perhaps we have to be a little bit more patient and wait for to see moving images of these famous Group A machines. And for me, the voice of rallying will always be Mark James. Mark James has been splattered throughout my love of rallying for many, many years. And of course, we're very privileged. We've had him on the podcast several times. But for me, it was a really good place to start because Mark always, always was there with the coverage and with the words and with the drivers and everything else. So for me, it was a really good place to start this documentary is to listen to what Mark had to say about his introduction into doing the coverage in 95 and of course, how the season finished. This is Absolute Rally, the season of 95. For me, 1995 was huge because it was the first year that I covered the entire championship. Um, I'd covered the RAC rally for local radio or for whoever really in the past, um, but I'd gone freelance at the end of 1994 and I was working for a chap called Greg Strange. And Greg came into the office one day in January and said, do you think rallying would work on the radio? And I said, yeah, I think that's great. I hadn't really thought about it. But yeah, I think that would be that would be really good. He said, yeah, so do I. We're off to Monte Carlo next week. And that was the start of it. And he'd had a conversation with a, with a group called the World Rally Teams Association that were trying to raise rallying's, world rallying's profile. And Greg had said, off the top of his head, I think we've got something here. And I know Mark's into rallying, and he's now freelance, so he's got all the time in the world. So... You know, if we can send him off around the world and, and report on these things, would somebody pay for it? And they said, yes. So, 95 was the start of it all. So, we turned up in Monte Carlo. When I look back at it, we were so naive. We'd 
ordered an ISDN line, which in those days was quite fancy because it was um, it was a digital line, which originally was for data, was for computers to talk to each other. But there was a company called Glensound in the UK that made a piece of kit that now is everywhere. Um, and it was an ISDN box. It was like a mixer. You could plug microphones and tape recorders and headphones into it, plug it into an ISDN line, and instead of having these ridiculously expensive music lines that broadcasters had to use in the past, you could have these ad hoc digital lines put in, and you could then go live in really good quality from anywhere. So that's what we did. And we couldn't get it to work, and we had to get the engineers out, and we discovered there was a French... Um, issue with, with some of the technology. Anyway, it worked eventually uh, just before the rally. So we, we did stuff for local radio and uh, as the year went on, we started doing stuff for um, the BBC, for Five Live, for the World Service. I think we did we did a couple of, uh, of pieces. But of course, we went into it not ever dreaming that it would be the Colin Championship year. We went into it to raise the profile of, of the entire championship and um, Judging by, by people's comments that they were listening to us on Five Live and on local radio stations and things, that's what we, what we did. Um, and it was, um, it, was, uh, it was a real eye-opener when, towards the end of the year, um, that people were taking us so seriously. Because, of course, you go out on these things and you sit in um, Rally HQ and you're, you're broadcasting from the media centre or whatever. And you're effectively talking to yourself, but the other side of the world, it's popping out of people's car radios and their, their you know, radios at home. And it was really bringing rallying to certainly a British audience that had never really had that done before. That, that was fantastic. Because it was all new to me, I don't think it was really, it, it really kind of sunk in how short the season was. It was only later when we were up to the sort of 10, 11 events or, you know, we were also in a period of, of events rotating so that, for example, you know, 95, Collins Championship year, fantastic. 96, the RAC rally wasn't even around of the, of the championship. So that was my first year working for telly and you had the likes of, you know, Armin Schwartz and, and you know, Kankanen going off and things on the RAC, but it was a non-championship year. Um, but 95 was 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 great in a way because we didn't have so many events to to worry about but it was funny looking back at the chris harris story on top gear the other day all the stories came flooding back you know the carlos getting injured the um the whole business with colin kicking the rubbish bin in catalonia the team orders the whole that sort of thing um it it boy had i known at the beginning of the year what the stories would have been as the year went on you know I think we'd have probably sold it to 10 times the number of radio stations. The Toyota story was obviously one of the biggies during the year. And I think there were a few people that were starting to question. There was certainly, you know, um, the, the, the journalists kind of all knew each other. And we went out for dinner and, and you'd bump into people. And there was quite often somebody who'd have a conspiracy theory who would try and get somebody else to float it and then go, hey, the BBC's saying it. It must be true or whatever. Um, and I tried to avoid getting sucked into that trap, although unfortunately it did happen once or twice over the, the time that I did the WRC. Um, but with the, with the Toyota thing, because it was so big, because it was done in the way that it was, nobody could really believe it. And so, you know, that whole business in Australia where they were so quick at Langley Park, and again, when, you know, watching Top Gear, the, the drag race, the sprint away from the start line, and, you know, Kankanen was, what, two seconds up or a 
100 yards ahead or whatever it was at the end of the straight. That's when people started thinking what was going on. And then by the time we arrived in, in Catalonia, um, again, they kind of picked up where they left off. So had they found something amazing? Well, now, of course, we know the reason why they were so quick, and clearly they hadn't found anything amazing. They'd, um, they'd found a way of cheating. But the, the way that it broke, as I understand it, there was a whistleblower who, um, who went to the FIA and said, look, you need to know something. And the way that it was discovered was that there was a special tool, and they were so blatant about it that the tool was hanging up on the back door of the van. And the the FIA technical delegate, um, chap called um, Jacques Berger, went into the service park and found the tool and took the tool away with him. And it was that moment that Toyota went, oh, no, we're in trouble here. He knows what the tool is. And they, at the end of Catalonia, they impounded the car. They packed up. The team disappeared. They were heading to the airport. And they left uh, a lady called Alexandra Sheeran, who was the... I suppose the office junior in the in the media centre, she was left to carry the can. And, of course, the story broke, and everyone just descended on, on poor Alexandra. And she went on, A, to become a good friend, but also she ended up being um, the F1 media delegate. You know, she had a fantastic career in, in Formula One and in, in, uh, in motorsport generally. But that was a real baptism of fire for her because it all kicked off, and she was the one left holding the baby and and the senior management who should have been there asking questions was legging it back to cologne i'd never seen obviously i was still the new boy it was my first season but we were invited out to dinner by dr by david richards uh, who was who was you know boss of the pro drive team and he said to us the night before guys just for you to be aware you know we're we're on the verge of of both titles here so we've decided that uh, we are going to um, impose team orders Carlos is ahead at the moment, and Colin is second, so we've told them that's the way it'll finish. And we were absolutely gobsmacked. And, you know, me being, again, the new boy, I didn't know whether this was how it was done, whether the, the, whether the broadcasters, whether the journalists, whether the photographers, you know, were told the night before, hey, guys, we've imposed team orders, and then that would make you look good by saying, but, of course, team orders are, are in place, so Colin McRae will not win this rally. And, of course, that's not what happened. That final day, Colin, being Colin, um, went flat out. Carlos took it as, as red that he was going to finish first, so he backed off. He then came under attack from Colin. Um, I think you saw, again, the, the, the response from, from Carlos on the interview. And it was quite, uh, you know, the, the, the Top Gear piece for me was great because Carlos said, you know, Colin and I became the, the firmest of friends, although people thought we were the sworn enemies because of what had happened. But he said, you know, he was going for it. He was a professional driver, as was I. Um, and, you, you know, that last, that sequence, the onboard sequence at the end of the stage, where you had uh, Nigel Lilly and John Spiller and David Lapworth, I think, was there right on the flying finish, um, or just before the flying finish of the, of the final stage in Catalonia. And you've got Nigel looking at his watch and stepping out into the road to flag Colin down. And, of course, Colin doesn't even lift. He's flat past him. And then, you know, it all kicked off afterwards, and he had to take the penalty, and he kicks the bin and everything else. And for David Richards, I think that was the the, the, the biggest thing, was the, the loss of faith, uh, loss of face, in that he'd told us all the night before this was going to happen, and it didn't. And it was very embarrassing and very public. And they had to stage manage it, and it kind of left a, left a nasty taste in a lot of people's minds. I'll let you into a secret. One of the biggest 
tellings off I've ever had, if that's the right way of describing it, was I was asked by ProDrive to uh, do a live stage show, if you like, and present a, a Q&A with, with Colin and Carlos um, just before the start in, uh, in Chester. So uh, they got me up in, you know, ProDrive team clothing and whatever. So we were up on stage and I had Colin and Carlos did the interview. What do you think is going to happen? Where do you think this rally is going to be won and lost? Can you beat Carlos? Can you beat Colin? And then at the end, my biggest mistake, I said to the crowd, right, you know, you, you tell us your opinion. You've heard from these two guys. Who thinks that Colin's, who thinks Carlos is going to be world champion? Hooray. Who thinks Colin's going to be world champion? Brace yourself. You know, all the, all the, the roofs in, in, in Chester lifted off. And Carlos was furious and let it be known to the team who then came back and told me that that really wasn't a smart move. And um, that, had, that had rattled Carlos and it got him angry the day before. So um, I kind of slunk off a bit with my sort of tail between my legs, but I don't really regret it, to be honest. It was, it was a fun thing to do. And I think in the heat of the moment, it was one of those things that actually might have given Colin a bit of a psychological boost and given Carlos a bit of a... Um, you know, a bit of a, a, a step down, maybe, I don't know. Um, but uh, but it, was, it was something that I got a big telling off for. On the event itself, I was actually in Rally HQ, exactly as I had been for all of the other rounds around the world, where I was in the press office and there was a little uh, radio booth set aside for me. So I was doing the, you know, the hourly updates and whatever to the, to the stations that we were feeding. And then when it all finished, um, Greg Strange had been out on the road and Greg came back and said, you know, I think we need to, to speak to Colin. And he said, there's a there's a service point just down the road. Could you go? So I said, yep. Having not been out on the road at all for the event, I jumped in the car, looked at the map, saw where the service point was. Of course, we had all the right stickers to get in there. So I drove down. It was absolute chaos. And it's the it's the shot that you'd have seen where, you know, Colin drives in and everyone's just going berserk. And I managed to get probably about a minute, minute and a half with him. And it was, you know, Colin, well done. How do you feel? You know, all the obvious questions. And um, I zipped back to Rally HQ, pumped it down to all the radio stations. And, of course, within the hour, Colin was back. So you then had the far more kind of antiseptic questions that were being asked, you know, once the passion had died down and he'd done the donuts outside. And it was then, you know, he was then in interview mode, which is something that he didn't really like. But it was all a bit... Down, downbeat and a bit low key whereas the interview I do, did with him you know an hour hour and a half before on the road we had the passion we had the cheering we had everything else and that probably to me is one of my favorite interviews of the of the eight years that I covered the WRC the following year you know the the, the British interest um, snowballed really exploded um, Greg and I unfortunately fell out um, Greg's obviously, um, if you know the story, it's sadly no longer with us. We did make up at the end. We were still, we were talking. We we had a half decent relationship at the end. But I decided at the beginning of '96 that I was going to go my own sweet way. Um, and by then, the BBC had said, "Would you work for us in telly?" Five Live had come and said, "Would you work for us as well?" So on the event, I was doing hourly reports back for Five Live and the other BBC stations. And then afterwards, I would go into an edit suite in Birmingham and do the voiceover for the, um, for the worldwide program that BBC Pebble Mill was doing. And that was, that was year two. And in fact, that was year ooh, 96, 97, I think, and 98. Um, so that was a, was a really good period working for, for Auntie Beeb. 
Um, and then after that, 99, 2000, 2001 was, was BBC Sport in London. So not doing radio, but purely doing telly. So I'll always be grateful to Greg, even though we had our fallings out and, and you know, there were times where we, where we barely spoke. But, uh, you know, he was the one that, that set me up for my eight years doing the WRC and I'll always be grateful for that. But yeah, you're right. You know, 96, oh, Colin's going to win this again, surely. No. You know, the interest from the UK was, what's Colin doing? And then if he retired or if he had a bad rally, oh, well, you know, there's always one in a couple of weeks' time. Then, of course, you started to see Richard Burns come up and, and you know, start to be on the scene. And I was lucky enough to be there reporting on Richard's first win in Safari. Then I was there for his, his championship year. So, you know, my my period of covering the WRC really was, was one of the golden eras of, of, um, of rallying, and certainly in terms of the British audience, where I covered both British world champions. and so lucky to have been there. Absolute Rally, the season of 95. I don't know, it's difficult to say because uh, with the new regulation, uh, I think many drivers can win this year because we don't know the choice of tyre and, and we don't know the condition of the weather and it's very difficult to, to give you a pronostic and uh, I have no idea at the moment. You cannot be concentrated on the 40 km stage and after to do 30, km, 30 minutes mechanics. I change the brake, the front brake, I remove also the, the, the studs on the tire. Then normally you have 30 minutes to be relaxed and to have some rest, and you have to, 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 to do some mechanics. Then this is really stupid. Notwithstanding his aversion to spanner work, Delacour now was in a real position to challenge for the lead. Ably supported by the Belgian Bruno Thierry in the second escort. RAS Motorsport prepared car was performing perfectly. Despite some problems with tyre choices in the rapidly changing conditions, Thierry would start the third and final leg in a strong sixth place. Delacour gave it everything he knew, but he couldn't quite make it to the first position. Overall though, it's a Ford 1-2 with Bruno Thierry and Francois Delacour heading the field. Oriol third in his Toyota, ahead of the Subarus of Sainz and Liati. Agini sixth, McRae seventh, Bernardini eighth, Kankanen and Makinen round out the top ten as the final day dawns. And it dawns with Bruno Thierry in emphatic command. Masters on the opening two special stages of the dome, he extends his lead. Point. That means that Thierry has to carry out any maintenance himself. It was not really a, a service, it was a, a refueling and for the mechanics it was not possible to, to change the, the, the parts. And uh, I have I tried to to repair by myself but it was not possible. For the mechanics it was not possible to, to change the, the parts. And I think it was for them it was only for sure only 10 minutes 10 minutes to change this this part 
and uh, now uh, it was not possible for us to to keep the lead and now uh, we are out the race. Once again, an idea of what my Absolute Rally podcast colleagues were up to during 1995. So I thought I'd collar our own Jack Bengian and Ryan Champion about what they were doing. First up, Jack tells his tales of being at the race course, and then Ryan Champion talks about a ferry trip home. For me, the, the memory of 1995 has to be just the race course. And I know it's a perhaps a little bit of a cop-out for, for some people who remember the event well and remember those pictures uh, and the celebrations that were happening at Jester Racecourse with, with Colin and the Subaru team and all the fans that lined the racecourse and, and outside as well. But for me, it's kept 1995 alive on a day-to-day basis. I'm a, you know, I lived in Chester from, from the age of nine. Uh, I was at the racecourse at, at the age of three when, when Colin was doing the donuts and the racecourse and 1995 as a World Rally Championship season are still just as alive to this day to me as they were in 1995 because I don't actually remember seeing Colin doing the donuts. I just know I was there because my dad took me there and it was part of our joining into motorsport, so to speak. So for me, uh, you know, going into going into college, going into school, going into the, the local town centre every day involved going past Chester Racecourse and every time you come over the Grosvenor Bridge and head just over where the racecourse is to the left you can see down to that car park where Colin did the donuts and where the finishing ramp was where all the people stood there's a very famous lip in the road just to the left that overlooks that car park where people can watch the horse racing for free if you don't want to pay to get in it's a bit of a distance away but you can see and you definitely would have been in right up close to to watch colin um you know doing the celebrations in in 1995 there and anyone who knows chester will know this area very well it used to be a really old uh, you know police station building there which was really really ugly and it can be seen from the back of some of the pictures in in 1995 but now it's been exchanged for a, an abode hotel where there's penthouse suites and uh, also a really nice hotel at the top and you can actually go out on the balcony at the boat hotel and, and look over the car park now so for me um, you know the, the race course is not a single memory it's not a one event you know for me 1995 is is very much still alive it's one of the the greatest events in, in rallying history for a, for a British rally fan which fundamentally is is, is how I started as a, as a fan and Chester has so many uh, you know so many rally memories for me my granddad was the the foreman of Quick's Garage and would drive Roger Clark's Ford Escort Mark 1 you know around Chester in, in the middle of the night after servicing the car in, in the RAC rally and um, you know having Colin celebrate being the first British World Rally Champion uh, you know in Chester in my what is my hometown um, it just means rallying is alive in a way which I don't really think it probably is in uh, you know a lot of other cities in the UK or, or around the world so that that memory is um you know something that is continuous something that is is living and breathing and something that i can feel every time i i cross that bridge and and head into to chester city center and, and one of the key reasons why i got into rallying and uh, i know so many so many others did and there's a there's an on-rushing joke now that that people say uh, you know that there's more um, there's more people now who remember being at Chester Racecourse than were actually there because people like to embellish the truth and, and say they were there. And do you know what? I'd probably say I wasn't there because I'm not. I wasn't there in memory. Um, you know, as I said, I was I was three years old at the time, so it was a uh, uh, quite an odd, um, quite an odd memory to pick. 
So my first memory of the, the 1995 season, um, it, it was something that happened by accident, actually. Uh, I'd been to uh, John Hogland's Rally School in, in Norway with uh, several other well-known British rallying faces, Justin Dale, Neil Simpson, Jock Armstrong, there's a whole load of stories there. But um, for, for one reason or another, we uh, we missed our ferry and the one we ended up coming back to the UK on uh, just happened to have the uh, the Mitsubishi Rally Art team on board as well and they just won the Swedish rally with uh, with Kenneth Eriksson so that was a 95 Swedish and it was an overnight boat and to say the uh, the boat was lively that night was a bit of an understatement so uh, it was a great atmosphere great party on the on the boat so so that's sort of how I remember the uh, the 95 world championship season kicking off um, for me it was my my first year in the in the British championships so I was I was kind of for in on that so I guess the, the next thing really that I remember about the WRC season is uh, is coming around to New Zealand again which was uh, you know it was always Colin McRae's uh, favoured rally I think by that point I mean obviously he went very well in, in GB as well but he just made New Zealand his, his own rally and uh, I remember watching um, from a from a distance and and seeing uh, that Colin did what he did best there and just there were certain stages I think more two road was the the famous one where he could just uh, take so much time out of all the opposition and uh, he won New Zealand again and obviously with Carlos's uh, uh, mountain bike accident then it, it gave him a a real chance of the the world championship and uh, I think all of us will remember uh, Rally Catalonia what happened and. Uh, um, I think, it, although you know I wasn't there, it's it's still clear in my mind seeing those TV pictures of uh, of the Pro Drive team trying to slow Colin down on the last stage to to let Carlos win, and then that uh, that famous footage of uh, of Colin kicking the bin over in the service area when uh, he was told he had to finish second, and I think it was Rob Arthur at the time that was trying to get an interview with with Colin and. Uh, you know, an incredibly disgruntled Colin, uh, but it meant that Colin and Carlos obviously went into uh, into the Network Q Rally pretty much equal on points. And uh, I actually uh, I went spectating on um, the uh, the RSE Rally that year in '95 with Justin Dale, and um, a couple of things sort of stick in my mind. I, I remember. Uh, Hamsterley, I think, was the first proper stage of the rally on on day two after the spectator stages, and Colin just uh, he just wiped everybody, he wiped the floor. I think he was like thirty seconds up on uh, on Carlos and um, fastest by twenty eight or something like that, and it was a, an incredible time. And obviously that put him into the lead, and then then he got a, a puncture on the very next stage. I think it was like a forty mile stage or something like that in in Pundashaw. Um, probably just as well it was a long stage because it meant that uh, the puncture cost him less time because he would have been very quick on the rest of it uh, but that put him behind and I remember seeing him on the road section I remember seeing him like trying to trying to. I think it damaged the suspension or did something on the steering and there was a big crowd around the car at the roadside um, but that just set the stage didn't it, for this epic battle where Colin had to come from behind catch Carlos um, and, and Carlos must have you know really uh, really just felt the pressure on his shoulders because he had Colin on his home rally with massive support you know there was huge crowds everywhere and and Colin was just 
catching him and catching him and catching him stage after stage and uh, I think probably Carlos must have known even before Colin caught him that he wasn't going to keep uh, he wasn't going to keep McCrae behind for, for the rally or the championship and uh, I was lucky enough to, to be in the grandstand in Chester when, when Colin was doing the donuts and I remember him going up to, to get that trophy that gold trophy and losing the lid off the trophy and the whole crowd went wild and um, you know it's uh, not only was it Colin McRae winning the World Rally Championship but the way he won it to uh, to be so quick on that rally to dominate to do the donuts it's just a whole thing around it and you know I think that's that's one of the reasons why Colin McRae is held in, in such regard today that it, you know he was uh, whilst he was relatively quiet out of the car he's, he did his talking in the car and uh, you know he was uh, this flamboyant driver spectacular always did it his way he was always the fastest always the most spectacular and uh, you know that's that's uh, why we'll always love Colin McRae This is Absolute Rally the season of 95 from rally fans I guess now it's only natural to move to the teams and the first team I wanted to start with which was one which I probably had a little bit of a, a soft spot for which was the Ford team and it was a person I wanted to reach out to who's been with Ford throughout many decades um, started off at RED went to Boreham and finished his career quite recently retiring at M Sport John Millington has been in and around the service park for, for close on 30 years and he seemed a really good person to reach out to and talk to about the 95 season and what the Blue Oval was planning and what they got up to Myself and Trevor Gordon were joint coordinators uh, basically Trevor worked at Boreham before I did with Jim Porter and then they asked me to come along and help Trevor. Unbeknown to me, the idea was Jim was going to leave and retire. So after we'd done a couple of rallies, he then announced the fact that he was retiring and left it just for Trevor and myself. So that, that's how I um, ended up working with Trevor. He, he kind of, if you like, he was the lead coordinator. And I, I always used to say, I'll do all the stuff you don't want to do with this, in effect. Was this uh, jobs like that always seem to be like co-drivers though? Never a drivers, is there? You never, <laughs> you never have drivers trusting to no. do things like that. It's always co-drivers. I know it's not fast enough for drivers. You say that's the trouble. <laughs> so ninety-five, obviously, John is is something that we all kind of look back on. Obviously, it was very famous because we we got our first, you know, British world champion. But there was so many other stories and so many other teams, and and you know, Boreham was very much. A place which um, I suppose we were all a bit giddy about Boreham. Boreham, I think, to rally fans was like Disneyland because obviously people remember the Mark II's coming up and things like that. So you were working there and we were coming into this era now of, of Group A. Can you remember that kind of era of, of the Group A car first coming about and obviously Ford's foray with the Escort Cosworth coming into this season? Um Obviously, I don't remember a lot on the technical side because we, we were our office was remote from the workshop, and uh, they didn't let me anywhere near the workshop because all I wanted to do was to go reset the points and stuff like that, which had gone years ago. <laughs> so I was definitely banned from there. But no, I, I remember lots of meetings and things like this. But um, Ford, as a factory team, what I think you've got to really appreciate to understand it clearly is it was run as a publicity vehicle for Ford as a company. So every year they had to present a budget to the um, board of directors at Ford 
as to how they could justify spending this amount of money to get this amount of publicity back. Well, we were just coming into an era then when for themselves were not seeing the value for money. Now, you could say part of that is the fact that they didn't utilize the results that the motorsport got. I also personally think they never actually appreciated the value of Borum and Ford in rallying and in motorsport. As a consequence of this, Borum <coughs> was offered a budget which wasn't sufficient to do the eight rounds of the World Championship then because we were right into the middle of the rotation system. So although there was something like 12 or 13 WRC events, only eight of them counted for the, the main Group A Championship. As a consequence of this, there was a private team in Belgium called Rasport who had a very, very wealthy owner and a budget and fancied, I think, looking back now in hindsight, the opportunity to become the factory team. So they offered to go into partnership with Borum and run a joint team, which effectively was a Ford factory team but badged and marketed as Rasport. Um, this merger wasn't without a lot of problems, I have to say, because you can imagine uh, a factory team, anybody who's worked in one will know all the paperwork, all the procedures, all the things you've got to go through in order to make uh, a competition department work within the uh, concept of a mainstream car factory. Obviously, the private team's big advantage is flexibility and speed and reaction to change things. So they initially found it very, very difficult and complicated. Uh, if they wanted to do something, we had to say, oh, in that case, we have to put a paper in for that and get permission and all this stuff. So that initially, they found it very difficult. However, on the plus side, they were very, very nice, very good people to work with. Um, they did bring a lot of ideas, a lot of expertise to the party, if you like, uh, and some really good people. I mean, the one that stands out was their chief mechanic, a, a chap called Reno, who used to be famous for working at Lancia, and he became like the lead mechanic. And um, as a result, there was a lot of things got done that we couldn't actually do prior to him coming along because of his expertise. Wow. Is that why, you know, one of my, my one of my favourite drivers of all time, and I don't know why, but he was always happy, was, was Bruno Terry, I'm guessing. Bruno, yeah. Bruno got his gig through the fact that it was a Belgian team, I'm guessing. Uh, partly, yes. Um, obviously, they, they wanted um, uh, people that they could, they've obviously had a marketing aspect as well. So they were they had sponsors both in Italy and Belgium that they had to satisfy. So they needed Bruno. I mean, Bruno was a fantastic person, a very very kind person. His biggest problem was he was too nice, and unfortunately, he wasn't ruthless enough when uh, it came down to the uh, cut and thrust of winning the World Championship Rally. The, the biggest or the biggest regret or sadness of that whole year was his Corsica result when I was just about I, to ask you about that yeah um, he was as surprised as all the rest of us he couldn't understand he looked bemused like a, a kiddie at uh, Disneyland why the times were just coming and it just clicked and him and Stefan 
they just hit the right note, they hit the, the ground running, they were fastest to start with, and unfortunately, um, due to a, a broken wheel bedding at the back, which cost them the rally in the end, two stages from the end, I mean, that was absolutely heartbreaking. But it was fantastic to see him finally get to be leading a rally. And amazing the number of people that came up to, to wish him well and congratulate him. And I think he was surprised and taken back by, if you like, his fan base or his, his supporters that obviously he'd never come in contact with because he'd always been fourth or fifth or something like this. And all of a sudden they, they were there and he suddenly realized that, you know, how popular he was. Um, it, it was a heartbreaking <laughs> finished to that rally unfortunately you also add that the the the, the legendary uh the, probably the the one who we all thought was going to be you know i suppose at that period we, we talk about the sebs of these areas which which was was francois delacour um and you know the that that the, the, the steely eyes the, the the i don't know how how he could possibly drive sitting so close to that steering wheel but what was what was delacour like to deal with uh, again, he, he was he was a character. That's the best way of putting it. <laughs> a very determined character. Uh, very very uh, demanding in what he wanted. But he had this uncanny knack of carrying speed through a corner. And other drivers, they, they couldn't understand how he could do it to to get the speed through the corner. And it was all to do with his delicate car control. The downside of this was that obviously most of the cars, the setups, the, the, the way things were structured in a two-car team were based around him. Now, unless you had his skill and this delicacy of driving and carrying this speed through, you couldn't get the car to work. And unfortunately, Bruno did struggle a lot to actually get the performance out of the car that Francois could get because of his driving skill. Um, I mean, it was a very um, loud character, shall I say, <laughs> shouting and demanding, but I think a lot of this was through frustrations at himself that he, he couldn't get uh, the, the, the results or the, the speed out of the car that he wanted, and he couldn't understand why. What he needed was a very, very good engineer to work with him, um, <clears throat> which at Ford with Reno... And um, Philip Donovan and people like that, he, he did eventually settle into that. And by the end of the year, they, they got a really good working relationship. But uh, no, he, he was certainly was a character. The one I feel sorry for was poor Kathleen sitting next to him. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to ask you about the, the infamous almost seven-speed box that that came and went throughout that season as well. I know you said you weren't involved with, with, with the technical side of it, but... Was it was it really as ill-fated as what we all remember it as? Uh, yes. It, <laughs> as I said earlier on in this interview, one of the, the, the downsides of working with a factory team within a factory uh, situation is the, the time it takes to actually make something happen. When the box was conceived and the idea floated and the designs made, it made perfect sense. But then we had <clears throat> a bigger restrict, uh, less uh, restrictions on all other aspects of the car. We had slick tyres and things like that. 
as the cars became more controlled in order to bring the cost down, and we had the smaller restrictor, which meant that the engines worked in a different characteristic, the complexity of seven speeds wasn't needed. It wasn't to say that the box was wrong. It was just that you didn't need seven. The, the torque and everything that was coming out of the engines with the smaller restrictor and the way they were starting to map them and get them to work meant you didn't need it. So you were carrying an extra gear for nothing. The box was not a particularly strong box. Whether this was the fact they were trying to cram too much into the limitations of the casing or what they had to work with, I don't know, or whether it just wasn't designed really good to start with. But uh, it was one of these things that, unfortunately, the drivers got into their heads that that was the thing that was slowing them down. So it didn't matter what you did with the car. Oh, it's a seven-speed box. Now, obviously, when they got rid of that and went back to a six-speed box mid-season, once they could demolegate it, that took away that problem. So then it was a case of, well, you haven't got that problem now. Now why aren't you quick? And, of course, then the other sort of aspects of the car came more into focus that they had to look at developing things like the rear suspension and stuff like that to try and get the car to be more competitive. The other thing that, that kind of happened around that time, and it wasn't just for you guys, but certainly across the board with, with all the teams, you know, their drivers were, were, were parachuted in, and the, 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 the list of their drivers that, that you guys had, obviously, just the Bonquist, Alex Florio, Neil Allport, you know, I can kind of understand the likes of Neil Allport, obviously, because of where he's based, so obviously, for Australia and New Zealand, that, that, that was perfect. Stig, I'm guessing, was obviously a no-brainer for, 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 for Sweden. Um, when you start looking at these drivers, you know, I'm assuming importers are the ones that are paying for these third cars. Is, is that how it worked for you guys? Well, it was all part of the marketing strategy because obviously um, the uh, budget was coming from Ford of Europe, not Ford of Great Britain. So you had to look at um, what was best for the marketing in each individual country. So like you've just said, for Sweden... Stig was a household name, he sold cars, so that's the object of putting him in. Um, none of it was done financially, so in other words, there wasn't um, like, oh, we'll, we'll give you more money from Ford Sweden if you text Stig, that sort of thing. It was all done in order to, when the budgets are put in at the start of the year, in order to justify the fact that the money's coming from Ford Europe, that we will put in to a world championship car, your local driver or what, uh, somebody who's going to be a household name in that particular country. The driver was not chosen by the countries, it was chosen by Barham. Did, uh, did obviously you, you could see what was going on across the service park as well. Was there, was the glances across the service park, because obviously we, we know, you know, we're, we're the benefits now knowing who, obviously who was the world champion then, but obviously the McRae's had, had such history with Ford, you know, obviously Jimmy with, with, with obviously the Sierra Cosworth, obviously even Colin to some degree to the Sierra Cosworth. Was there perhaps some, some glances across the service park of, of maybe having, you know, a, a Brit in the car? Did that even come up, in mind what you've just been saying about the, the European budget? Um, <clears throat> no, because I think at that time it, it was, Colin was the one and he, he was firmly in trance with uh, Subaru. Um, the, the only, the, the up and coming Brit, if you like, as far as Ford was concerned, was uh, Gwyndaf. 
and he was running the um, Super 2000 in the British Championship and they entered him in a couple of World Championship events, obviously GB, which he won. Um, as a result of that, um, they ran Gwyndath in Indonesia the following year. Again, it was a way to try and bring on, um, if you like, a, a younger driver as such. Um, whether they were been better looking at Alistair McRae more than Gwyndath, I don't know, but... Um, the, the decision was taken to use Gwyndaf. The other thing with Gwyndaf, he used to do a lot of work at Borum doing endurance testing and car testing, tyre testing and things like that. And I actually got to know him quite well through his testing. The fact he was um, at Borum quite a lot doing all the, if you like, the laborious stuff, because that's the one thing Francois wouldn't do was the laborious driving round and round and round to make sure things were okay and Jura's testing and stuff like that. So um, it's a kind of behind-the-scenes situ situation with Gwyndaf that um, he, he was the one they were looking at from Ford of Britain's side. If, you know, as, as we, we, we look towards how the season finished, was the the fact that you know we we did have obviously Colin become world champion obviously Richard was coming through of course as, as well as that time you know rallying certainly to me at that point um, I was 19 years old um, rallying all of a sudden became mainstream again um, for a very you know there was a window of there was a window of time where rallying became mainstream again from your point of view, obviously, is that something you were talking about, obviously, fights with budgets and stuff like that? Was that something that perhaps Ford looked at? Did they, did they see the benefits of what was happening in rallying, or did they not actually think, well, it's worth putting any more money into this because we've now got people paying for it, so maybe that's not the way for us to go? Um, yeah, I, I mean, from a personal aspect, I know what you're saying. Um I personally think Ford did not use the results of rallying and what they had in rallying to its maximum. Um, there could have been a lot more benefit um, in what was actually happening in the board and what was happening in the World Championship, what was happening in the UK with Colin. Because the spin-off of that, it's not just the fact Colin wins it, Subaru see it. People think, OK, that's Subaru, but they're Japanese what's British Ford and the spin-off came back to Ford but then didn't kind of utilise it and there was a little bit of this if you think um, like the, the Ford Mexico for example that was a brilliant example of how to utilise uh, a fantastic result into a marketing tool and make money at it because they certainly did make money at it the amount of cars were sold um, they, they could have pushed it more, advertised it more. Um, I mean, can you imagine if Ford offered trips round Borum, like, for example, M-Sport do now around their workshop? The queue would be as long as you get outside a supermarket now. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it would be a fantastic thing. And it, it was never opened up like that, and it should have been. And I think part of it is that... Um, you're working within the concept of a massive manufacturer, uh, which is not a bad thing. There's a lot of pluses to that side, um, but you don't have the freedom to do a lot of these things because 
for example, you can't wander onto a Ford, into a Ford factory and have a look around. And Borum is, in their eyes, is another Ford factory just in a different location. So the concept means that they have to take it out of Ford, take it out of that mindset, and say, right, this is a marketing tool now. Let's try and sell it or let's try and do it. I mean, all it takes is a, is a little badge on the side of a car that we won so-and-so, or the sticker in the back window or something like that. I mean, look at Seat, World Championships in the back of all these Seats, and then in small yeah. letters it says F2, <laughs> but it yeah. says World Championship in big letters, which is great. You know, they've done it. People will see that. Oh, World Championship rallying. Oh, that's that Colin McRae thing. And it's, it's, you know what? It's, it's funny you say that because, you, you know, you, you think about, if I if somebody says Seat to me still to this day I think bright yellow yes and we think Subaru we think golden gold wheels blue car yeah and you 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 ask any punter on the street of, a, of an age even if they're not motorsport fans they're the answers you're going to get they're going to be the stock answers and Seat yeah. absolutely nailed it yeah. uh, during that period I completely and utterly agree with you but if you think about it so, Subarus were pickups that farmers used and all of a sudden they, they became the cult car to have the other perfect example is Peugeot's rattly old 404 that the family doctor had or the family vet and all of a sudden they bring out the uh, T16 and it, again it's the cult car to have it, it's still there today people still want a GTI Peugeot yeah yeah amazing amazing so yes. Yeah. <laughs> for you, 95, is it one that is is it is it one of regret or frustration when you look back from from your point of view of of what went on during that season? Um, for me, uh, first of all, I got a lot along with Trevor, a lot of satisfaction in actually getting this thing to work, uh, the Rasport thing. I mean, there, there was such a lot to sort out to try and merge a private team into a factory team. Now, Rasport were based at Charleroi, just over the, uh, into Belgium. And the number of times that we left Borum, drove down, went on the train under the, the Channel Tunnel, up to Charleroi for meetings all day long, and then came back that night. I mean, we even went to one, seven o'clock one night. We left work at sort of five, down there, did the meeting, and we were back, at sort of back home at 10 o'clock that night. But there were such a lot of things to try and resolve. I mean, for example, language, they spoke French, so we had to say, right, the team language is English. So we had to do a lot of work to make sure all the paperwork from their side and our side was in English. Um, all the equipment, all the build of the cars, they're integrating their mechanics into the bottom setup, their vans and things like this. Um, and their way of working it did work like I said they were really really good people to work with so uh, from my point of view and I think Trevor would say the same if ever you spoke to him about it that period a lot of it came on us to try and coordinate and get the thing to actually physically work and run so it looked like a team from the outside um, the, the, the year itself to be honest I don't particularly remember a lot about the year apart from Bruno in Corsica um, some of the long haul events I, I vaguely recommend <laughs> memories of those sort of thing but th there was nothing really that stood out um, obviously the Toyota thing which I have to say 
for once the drivers were right because both Francois and Bruno would turn around to us during the year and say there's no way that car should be as fast you know we, we need more power and it's a thing that drivers always say because they always compare with the other team and you just dismiss it and think well it's just because they've beaten you that's why and sure enough in this instance they were correct and obviously the the, the great pleasure personally was GB when Colin won because I'd worked with Colin at uh, RED for a long time uh, and with Jimmy of course so it was really nice to see it all come together at last and he, he got the World Championship which was brilliant and of course it was in Chester so it, it wasn't that far from home Absolute Rally the season of 95 So how could Colin McRae take so much time off one of the best in the world? Crazy we can do nothing um... For, for me, just to try to, to keep you a Cancunen behind me, but it's impossible to, to catch uh, Colin McRae. Cancunen's drive in the closing stages was certainly one of the most spectacular. Braving the frost-covered stages of the New Zealand Spring, 50. Cancunen was at his absolute best. Rest 50, very long medium left. And long medium right. 70, long fast left. Reading the place notes, one corner ahead. Hankinen planning all the way. Didier Oriol, though, was the fastest of the clone-built Japanese cars, despite suffering from understeer in his Celica. But there was nothing Team Toyota Europe could do about the pace of Colin McRae ahead. Hankinen and Oriol even joked about the possibility of kidnapping the young Scott. Oh, I don't know. This rally has been really good for me always. I mean, I have... It has been actually the best rally in my career if I compare all the other rallies. And I don't know. I'd somehow this road suit very well to my driving style and I'm, I like it. And, and the country is very good as well. So from the Ford perspective, we now cross over to the service park, over to Toyota. Obviously, the elephant in the room of this season is what went on behind the scenes and what truly happened with regards to Turbogate. And one man who was who was sat in one of the cars, he was sat alongside you at Cancun, he was pushing for that championship, was Nicky Grist. And he joined our own Ryan Champions to talk about 95 from his perspective. Well, fantastic to have Nicky Grist with us to talk about the, the 1995 season. Uh, Nicky, you were uh, coming into your third year alongside uh, UR Cancun. Um, what was the uh, what was the plan for the '95 season? I guess it was to to win for the championship again with Yuho. Well, ultimately, yes. I mean, having sat with him in '93, he won the championship. Then in '94, Yuho said to Uwe Anderson that he'd take over some test and development work of the new ST205 Silica, while Didier stuck with the old 185 Silica to win the '94 championship. But in 95, we all moved over to the ST205, which, you know, the early part of 94, it was a little frustrating with the car. There were some uh, suspension issues, which they had to revert back to some older design stuff. So, you know, we were optimistic, but the 205 was a lot, lot bigger car than the 185 Celica and in many ways didn't quite feel as nimble and as nice to drive perhaps as 
as the 185. So we knew that with the, the test and development work, we'd, we'd be able to improve through the 95 season. But you, you had a good start, nonetheless, despite, uh, you know, maybe reservations. You were in the mix for the championship early on. Well, we were, but it was a, it was a funny old season, 95, because with, with Carlos having a little sabbatical in the middle part of the year with an injury and, you know, everything else, we, while we didn't win anything, we, were, we, we had a steady, a steady uh, classic um, You Are Kankinen season where he's... Uh, still plugging away, getting good results, finishing in the top few, collecting all those points. And, you know, by the time uh, we, we we got towards the end of the season, we were in there with a shout and, and we were leading the championship. And, um, you know, by the time we'd done Australia, we were in the lead and it was looking pretty good. And all we had at the end of the day was two rounds of the championship left in Catalonia and Rally GB. And, um, you know, we were confident enough that we could uh, pull something off. Uh, so, that, so that took you into uh, to Catalonia, but Catalonia didn't really go to plan, did it? <laughs> no, not quite. And, I, uh, you know, I think it was, um, I mean, everybody knows about the, the classic cheat and all the rest of it. That, uh, that TT came up with while a wonderful piece of engineering and, and, you know, in all the pre-event preparations, nobody, um, had picked it up. But, you know, we basically had, um, we tried it. They told us that we've got a new evolution of the engine and we want you to try it. And this was in, uh, Langley Park in Australia, which is a, a super special in, by the service park in front of, Everybody, and uh, it started on a, a tarmac road, two cars side by side, and we rocketed off the start line. And by the time we'd done 200 meters, we were about two car lengths ahead. And that was the <laughs> first time we'd ever tried this thing. Well, of course, you know, I mean, it was a bit like doing your dirty washing in public, really. And um, at the end of the day, everybody thought, oh, no, what the hell's going on there? What's that all about? That was the first time we'd used it. We'd gone through the rally. We hadn't used it at all, and um, you know. So then we 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 finished that event, and we were in control of the championship really. And we went to Catalonia, and the first day, you know, you had worked a lot on his time at driving, and you know we'd, uh, you know, in fairness to him, he was beating Didier Oriol and everybody, and we were leading the rally after the first day. So you know, that said, we were absolutely delighted, and. Um, we basically went to service in Lorette de Mar that evening and TT in the normal style, going through everything, changing turbos because we change a turbo every day. And um, anyway, there was a scrutineer at each car. So when we took the old turbo off and put a new turbo on, um, apparently the scrutineer said, thank you very much, we'll take this now. And they took all the turbos. So we were obviously unaware of what was going on, completely unaware, because we were just told, literally, it was an evolution of the engine. So we, we left Lorette de Mar the next morning, I think we were first car on the road, and went to the first service point, and um, the head engineer, or overall engineer, was looking a little bit of a worried man in the, in the service point, and uh, chain smoking, you know, two cigarettes at a time virtually, and I said, he said, good luck today, Nikki. I hope it all goes well. And I said, thank you very much. Thank you very much. 
and off we sped and we did I think we did a couple of stages and unfortunately we had an off and we rolled so we were out of the rally anyway so that was that I mean championship wasn't over for us because we had rally GB to go um, but uh, unfortunately um, you know we later that day of course then it all came out they found what TT had done and for us it was a bit of a shock because all our efforts were had come completely to an end all championship points were taken away from every member of the uh, Toyota team manufacturers points everything gone and a massive I think it was a quarter of a million dollar fine and that was basically our championship done which obviously then handed over the championship battle to Team Subaru and between Colin and um, Carlos. And the rest really is history. And, and you had to obviously stand by and watch that championship battle. But what what was the reaction uh, from yourselves within the team? And, and what was the reaction towards you about this ban? I assume everybody thought that you were in on it and you would know what was going on. Well, yeah, I, I think that's that's... It's, it's come up in conversation a number of times with people since and, you know, people can't believe that we knew nothing about it. And that was absolutely the case. You know, the engine shop very much was a closed area and there was very few people allowed in there. So nobody really knew what was going on other than certain individuals in the hierarchy. And, you know, I, people have said that even Uwe Anderson didn't know about this. Um, you know, so, you know, in many ways, it was, uh, it, it really was a, a very top secret thing. But, uh, while it gave us extra performance, I think if, if for any reason, if Toyota hadn't have chosen for us to use it in Langley Park in Australia, um, you know, nobody would have ever known because it was just, if off any normal start line, nobody would ever know, would they? They had nothing to match it against. Uh, no, and, and you're quite right. It was, it was very obvious with, with where it was used. I, I guess it must have been quite a shock for, you, for yourselves, though, to be in that position as well. But, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a nice situation. Obviously not. Um, you know, and, and to have to lose the championship on, on something like that. But, you know, I know that, that Toyota had, uh, you know, been promised to win the championship. And I don't know whether that would have had a bearing on the the head engineer what was his name i got to remember his name now that's a sign of age for you ryan um <laughs> but he went to dieter bulling dieter bulling i think is was the was the main man at that time and you know obviously for him it was you know pretty serious but you know for the japanese who were such honorable individuals do you know what i mean Yes, they, they yeah. wouldn't have. I'm sure they wouldn't have liked it, but we were never a part of of any of, of any uh, any discussions with the with the Japanese at all. So, as you said, that meant not only were you uh, excluded from the championship, but you had to sit out your home round of the World Championship. Uh, what did you do on that rally on the '95 uh, uh, Network Q rally, as it was at the time? Yeah, no. I just sat at home and watched it all unfold. I mean, you know, Colin was always very fast in, in Britain. I mean, we'd had numerous battles with him, you know, over the years. And, and you know, generally he would have the upper hand um, with us on, on Rally GB. But, 
you know, he would make the odd mistake and then hand it to us on a plate. But in this case, you know, we really did come good and literally controlled it from from start to finish. And, and I think that if you are and myself couldn't have won the championship, then I'm really happy that, that Colin did. Um, you know, so, um, yeah, our 90, our first British world champion. And that brings us to the end of the first part of this two-part special that we're making on the 1995 season. We've heard from Toyota, we've heard from Ford. Next up, we're going to have Mitsubishi and Subaru next week and some other people from behind the scenes of this iconic season as we look back on it. If you've enjoyed it, please tell your friends. Please click the subscribe button. Um, but we'll be back same time, same place, Neil at Podcast Hall with part two next week. This season of 95, an absolute rally documentary produced by Sims Promotions. Spread the word and download the podcast every week. Absolute Rally.co.uk.